And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We are one of those podcasts with a pretty self-explanatory title. The Athletic's tactics and analytics writers Michael Cox and Mark Kerry join me, Ali Maxwell, to discuss football topics and trends with a strong interest in the strategy and the numbers behind them. i got Mark with me. How are you doing this week? You, you had a, a brief break last time out. All well? Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, had a nice uh, refresher last week uh, and I'm feeling festive, which actually bodes quite well for this episode, I think. Oh, a little teaser <laughs> straight off the bat. Love that from you. Uh, you were thrown straight back into work and straight into the Wolves, uh, helping Tim Spears with a piece on Bruno Lage's men. Uh, they are right bang in the middle of the table around Christmas time, Wolverhampton Wanderers. What, off the back of the, the work that you did for that piece, would you say they're doing well? What could be improved? Yeah, it was just a, it was a brief uh, bit of work with Tim. It was just sort of a bit of ad hoc work, but uh, yeah, I mean they're they're quite tight at, at the back in terms of shots conceded, but also not too adventurous going forward. So it, it's one of those where I think they've only lost by more than two goals, um, or more than one goal just just once all season. So mm. all their games are pretty tight. I think that he's just I guess first and foremost keeping it nice and settled before hopefully kicking on. But they've I think they've outdone expectations early doors. Mm. I think this season. Yeah, I've certainly enjoyed watching them. My, my takeaway from the piece was how do you just unlock them a little bit more mm. and what could the potential of that team be? They're, they're an interesting case at the moment. Hello, Michael. Hi, Ali. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, not too bad, thank you. Looking forward to today's episode, I must say. I am as well. But but first, I mean, we have to talk about the fact that the, the site has caught fire this morning. Who are the 10 best players in the Premier League? A group of the athletic writers contributing to that, including yourself. Uh, main takeaways, main controversies? I'd invite people to judge for themselves. You know, I mean, I think my list is absolutely ideal. But uh, yeah, it, it's one of those pieces where I just, you're never going to agree with someone's uh, someone else's opinion. And uh, many people don't agree with my opinion. So that's that's good. Mark, there's a guy on there called Michael Cox. Get this, he's got Bruno Fernandes over Mo Salah. Absolutely unbelievable stuff. Um, I, I just I think I think Fernandez has been the best player from when he joined till the summer. I think he was the best player in the league over those eighteen months, mm. and I'm surprised that's been so quickly forgotten. It's all gone to pot now because they brought in Ronaldo and the systems completely changed. But when they brought him in, were they like ninth in the league or something? I mean, they were dreadful when he came in, and by the summer they were in second place. I think the, the work he's done in that team was absolutely. Fantastic. In like a in like a pretty bad team aside from that. Liverpool's a great system and Salah's playing brilliantly. But this system is built very, very well and he's thriving because of that. Whereas Fernandez turned an absolutely dreadful side for Manchester United standards into a good team. I think I think he's a brilliant player. 
no one has taken the release of this piece worse than Ben T in the comments who says, <laughs> the fact Bukayo Saka hasn't been included has just ruined my Christmas. Might as well take down the decorations now. Uh, head to the Athletic site to wade in yourself. And if you're not a subscriber, you can get 33% off an annual subscription today if you go to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. But our job today, Michael, is to allow Ben T to rediscover his festive spirit because it is officially Christmas time and just like its traditions around food and drink and films, Christmas also has its own football tactic, the Christmas tree formation. We're paying homage this week. Yeah, looking forward to it. I don't agree that it's officially Christmas season, but um, yeah, we're going to talk about the Christmas tree formation, which just sounds very glamorous. Um, And I think in some ways it is quite glamorous. You're talking to someone whose birthday is December the 17th, so I'm... Uh, oh, I see. I'm quite militant about those things, though. So there's sort of selfish reasons for this, really. <laughs> you, 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 you don't really want Christmas season to start till cock season is finished. I don't want other people to be in, uh, enjoying themselves uh, <laughs> Ever. before I've enjoyed myself. Ever. Yeah. Um, what is the Christmas tree formation in basic terms, Michael? Well, it's, it's a funny one. It's probably the only formation we talk about in modern terms that isn't kind of numbered. I mean, people used to talk about the WM, for example, and that wasn't numbered. But I suppose even that was explaining the pattern through um, through a shape. And the Christmas tree is, is kind of similar. I'd say it's basically four, three, two, one, isn't it? It's, it's two number traditionally two number tens behind a lone striker, and then behind that you've obviously got three fairly central midfielders, usually the two outside ones pushing towards the flanked, and then a back four. Um, but I just think Christmas tree formation is automatically more exciting than mm. any combination of numbers you can get. And sometimes these things don't work very well, but it is, it's a perfect visual as well, because not only have you got the, the triangular structure, but even with the goalkeeper, you've got the, um, the trunk as well. So it works very well uh, semantically. Uh, you've discussed it there. And my first thought, Michael, is, is it just... A modification of the four-three-three. That those two behind the striker. That's basically the key here, right? Yeah, I suppose so. I, I I thought about this question probably for too long, to be honest. And then I thought you were going to say I, for two minutes. <laughs> no, for longer than that. And I I guess I guess it is a modification in the sense that the kind of system that, for example, Antonio Conte played at Chelsea. Sometimes that was called a a 3-4-3 and sometimes it was called a 3-4-2-1 and it was the same system we were talking about so I suppose you can do the same kind of thing here Um, so yeah I suppose it is a modification but certainly with those two floating players if you like I think traditionally would be very much inside I think of if you go about 10, 15, 20 years the sides that played this system they'd be two kind of classic number 10s it was almost a way to get them both into the team now I think players a little bit more fluid a bit more versatile Maybe there's more of a similarity to a four-three-three. Yeah. So there's a little bit more nuance than, for example, saying, "Well, a four-three-three with two inverted wingers on the side is basically this." Oh yeah, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Yeah, I think I think you can have. I mean, Liverpool, for example, Salah's left-footed, Mane mm. usually comes into inside onto his right, but. I don't think you would ever consider that a Christmas tree formation. Okay, in terms of the 
attacking in a five or the front five, which I, I always think about now whenever I think about a football tactic because of, of the writing that you and others have done. It, it's pretty straightforward here. The fullbacks clearly are going to be the ones tasked with creating the, the width in attack and um, the extent to which they are high and wide, I suppose, is, is down to the manager. But if you want any width in this formation, it really does come down to them. The question, I suppose, is, is how those three central midfielders act in possession when you've got the, the front five of, of fullbacks, the dual tens and that striker. But you mentioned Conte there as well. We should say, you know, this might be or might not be a modification of a 4-3-3. It's also not far off that 3-4-2-1 uh, that Conte's Chelsea, well, that always makes me think of that, you know. Uh, and I guess my question is, why do you think modern managers generally prefer to have a third centre-back rather than the third central midfielder that we see in this system? It's a good question. I think sometimes managers like uh, a third centre-back in terms of build-up play. I think it depends what kind of system you're playing against in terms of how you want your defensive structure. I mean, Manchester City, for example, sometimes we use three centre-backs and, and uh, two central midfielders. Um I say centre-backs, often it'll be one of the full-backs coming inside, but often they shift to a kind of 2-3 formation. And actually, that's what Conte's Chelsea did sometimes. Sometimes Azpilicueta kind of pushed forward from the back into midfield, mm. became a third-century midfielder. So I guess it depends on uh, the players at your disposal and that kind of thing. But certainly in terms of the defensive shape, I mean, the, the Christmas tree, you wouldn't usually have... The two number 10s wouldn't usually be retreating to wide positions as they would be in a 4-3-3. They, they stay quite central in quite aggressive starting positions I'd say and that's what Chelsea have done I think most obviously in the Champions League final last year the uh, the two outside players were never dropping back either side of, of Kante and Jorginho they're always staying in yeah quite aggressive positions in the channels um, so there's a similarity in that respect yeah potentially scoring goals in transition as Chelsea did in the Champions League final uh, let's talk about the history of this formation I want to know Michael who the who the pioneers are or were and, and which teams historically have used this most successfully? Yeah, I mean, I always uh, think about Terry Venables speaking about it uh, when he was England manager just because it's probably the first time I'd heard it. Um, and he was, I mean, a very continental tactician. He'd managed Barcelona. Um, England had a few players, unusually, who could play between the lines, particularly Teddy Sheringham, Steve McManaman as well. A winger, really, but a few managers like to use him in a, a central position. Um, so yeah, I, I think of I think of Venables England, um, but really I think of Ancelotti's uh, Milan um, throughout the uh, the first decade of this century. That was a really interesting one because Ancelotti had become the manager we know him now, where he he basically wanted to cram all his best players in the same team together, and he was blessed with Pirlo, Seedorf, Rui Costa, and Kaka. And the only way he could figure out to play all four of them um, was in a Christmas tree formation with Gattuso as the, the workhorse getting through a lot of running. Um, and that became a big debate. I mean, Berlusconi, who was the president of Milan at, at the time, always wanted two strikers. So he didn't like the system. He would always prefer Shevchenko and Inzaghi up front, which usually meant Rui Costa being left out. But Ancelotti was a, a huge um, a huge fan of Rui Costa and a huge fan of that system. And I think I'm right in saying that his first book, which I don't think was translated into English, um, was called, in Italian, was called My Christmas Tree. I'm not going to attempt the uh, Italian uh, title of it. But uh, yeah, clearly he became quite synonymous with that system at Milan. Although I don't think he's really used it that often since. Mm. I could genuinely see him 
releasing a Christmas album at some point in retirement. Uh, it'd be a sort of surprisingly tuneful soprano and calling it My Christmas Tree. Uh, so so that classic Ancelotti Christmas tree side, was it a, a successful one at the top level of the game? Well, it's a funny one. I mean, they won two European Cups. They should have won a third when obviously they collapsed against Liverpool in 2005. But Ancelotti only actually won one league title in, I think it was, was it eight seasons with Milan? So... You could argue they were the dominant side in European football at that time, and yet they weren't actually winning that many league titles. So it was a strange one. I think at that point, football was very different to what it is now in terms of, I don't think there was that many teams who were really playing attacking football. There weren't that many teams who were um, prioritising passers and playmakers. You know, Barcelona were not a particularly sparkling team until really Guardiola took over. Um, so I'd say it was more um, more significant stylistically and tactically than it was in terms of actual success. Uh, and when he managed in the in the Premier League, Michael first with Chelsea and then, of course, with Everton, did we ever see Ancelotti try my Christmas tree over here? Uh, certainly not with Everton. That was very 4-4-2. I mean, Chelsea was an interesting one because the majority of the time he played 4-3-3 and he'd play, for example, Drogba up front and Nelka was often out on the right. Um, and maybe Kalu on the left. But I remember a couple of games, particularly what essentially was the title decider away at Old Trafford in, in 2010. He played Anelka up front, and then he had, I think it was Joe Cole and Maluda playing very narrow just behind him. And that, to me, felt like a different system. And I, about six years after that, I interviewed Ancelotti, and I asked about that game and why he decided to change the system. And he's he very deliberately and very uh, clearly said it wasn't a change of system. It was just a change of players. But I think because the players were so different, I mean, Joe Cole would interpret that role in such a different way to Anelka. You did end up with what, what looked to me like a different system. So I suppose it goes back to what you said about how it can be easily confusable with four three three. I mean, if you've got wide players who like going in behind and going down the line, that's very different to if you've got a playmaker out there coming inside. So, yeah, I guess the systems are confusable. Certainly were to me, anyway. <laughs> There's something about, I don't know how many other managers you've interviewed. Very impressive that you've uh, interviewed Mr. Ancelotti. But there, there is, <laughs> anecdotally to me anyway, just watching a lot of manager press conferences, there is quite a large extent to which managers don't really like answering questions where a journalist in particular has decided that they've spotted what they were trying to do tactically, right? Have you have you ever felt that? Where you often get the sort of stock answer tends to be like, football's not about formations. Football's about mentality. Football's about, you know, inhabiting space or something like that. And that feels a bit like what Angelotti was doing to you there. Yeah, I think sometimes fans are like, you know, tactics, hopefully the, the kind of people who listen to this podcast, they get frustrated when journalists don't ask about tactics and that kind of thing. Maybe things have changed a bit, but I've always got the impression managers don't love answering in-depth questions about that. A little bit the same way that if you interview, you know, the lead singer of, you know, if you interview Chris Martin, I don't know if you necessarily want to talk about the meaning of his lyrics and the composition of his songs. I, just, I think that's exactly I think, what Chris Martin wants to talk about. <laughs> no, I think I think the same way that lyrics are kind of like open, you know, there's a deliberate thing to them, but they're kind of open to interpretation. I don't think managers necessarily want to want to go in depth. I mean, I remember once in a press conference when um, Rafa Benitez had just joined Napoli 
and Napoli have been using through it back under Walter Mazzari. And of course, Benitez had them playing 4-2-3-1. And I said, um, how difficult is it, you know, to go from a side who played a back three for three seasons to a back four? And Benitez responded, um, it's easy when we win and it's more difficult when we lose. Mm. Um, I didn't include that quote in my match report. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark, who else do we need to mention? It's not just Ancelotti, is it? There have been Christmas trees littered throughout football history like they are on the sides of the road in the first week of January. Yeah, that was very graphic. Yeah, that was perfectly put. Um, well, I was going to say, was Ancelotti sort of influenced um, by Bert Head in, uh, in the late 60s and <laughs> early 70s, who was the Crystal Palace manager? Uh, at the time and he he was sort of one of the first to to use a kind of a lone striker with two attacking midfielders just in behind so I don't know whether that was kind of titled uh, the Christmas tree but I dug into it a little bit more and I think the kind of the first most well-known 4-3-2-1 was actually um, in Holland um, by Den Haag which mm. I hope is the good pronunciation um, in the late 80s um, by someone called Co Adrians mm. uh, so that was he was supposed to be um, the first exponent of that um, and then it's been kind of made more popular by by Terry Venables and more recently Carlo Ancelotti. Two legends of the game. I'd like to float World Cup winning France 98 as well who certainly in the final lined up in what has been described as a 4-3-2-1 formation um, and that had Zidane and Jokaev acting just off of Stefan Givash, of course, um, with Deschamps as the deepest midfielder, Petit and Carambo to his left and right, uh, and then the back four of Desai, Leboeuf, Turam and Lizarazu with Barthez in goal. Uh, interestingly, uh, if you do a bit more research on the France 98 Christmas tree formation, there's, there's a question on famous question website, Quora, which says, was France's 4-3-2-1 Christmas tree formation in the 1998 World Cup commonly used amongst French football managers in the past? And the top answer just says, ugh, don't mistake the Ancelotti Christmas tree with the Jacquet Great Wall of Concrete. (laughs) (laughs) You can always find good stuff on there. But Michael, France 98 won a World Cup with it. That was, I guess, a very of-the-time reason to play the Christmas tree because there was a bit of a debate about Djorkaev versus Zidane. And Djorkaev always insists that he invented that formation <laughs> by suggesting to Jacquet that actually you should just play me and Zidane. I mean, there's slightly different types of players. I think of Djorkaev as more of a forward than a midfielder. And I think of Zidane as more of a midfielder than a forward. So there was a, a nice balance. Um, but yeah, Djorkaev, I mean, Djorkaev is a brilliant player. I mean, scored a couple of really crucial goals for France. I think I think it was a free kick he scored that meant they qualified for Euro 96 when they were really struggling um, and was good throughout that tournament as well. So, yeah, that's a good example. Although I I do understand what the um, answerer in the, on that chorus site means in terms of it was a pretty defensive French side. I mean, really, it was a great goalkeeper, great back four, very solid central midfielder, uh, central midfield three. And then uh, they they tended to rely on defenders and set pieces for their goals in the knockout stage. So I do get what he means. Well, that's what I was going to say. I dug into this and they conceded just two goals across the seven games to to win France 98. So it shows that it maybe was a bit of a defence first, but I'm sure we'll come on to the, the strengths and weaknesses of this formation of, yeah, from an attacking and defensive perspective. But clearly it did work from a defensive perspective. Well, that's the history behind it. 
As with any question of football tactics, it seems like all roads lead to Bert Head, the Crystal Palace manager of the 1970s. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, taking a look at the Christmas tree formation. And if you thought that it had been consigned to football tactics history, think again. In the next part, we'll talk through its latest purveyor, Stephen Gerrard. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. So we can leave behind Crystal Palace in the 70s, uh, the Airy Divisi Den Haag in the 80s, uh, France in the 90s, and indeed Ancelotti's Milan side in the 2000s. We can talk about a current Premier League side, uh, Michael. Excitingly, the Christmas tree has raised its Christmassy head in the West Midlands. Aston Villa's new manager, Steven Gerrard, is approaching things uh, festively. Yeah, very much so. I've, I've really enjoyed um, watching Aston Villa so far. I think the results demonstrate the extent to which Aston Villa have improved, I think particularly without the ball. Um, but yeah, it pretty much is a Christmas tree. I mean, he's um, what I what has often been termed a 4-3-3 on paper has actually been the two wide players very much coming inside and playing behind the lone striker. And of course, the width all comes from, from the fullback, target, uh, target and cash who um, I think have both thrived under, under Gerard's system so far. And that means really that the midfield three is spreading wide and staying in quite deep positions. Often you end up with the fullbacks far in advance of the wide midfielders. But yeah, it's been it's been good to watch. It's been very effective. And um, yeah, it's a system that no one else in the Premier League is really using. So even from that perspective, it's been been great for us. Mark, is this Gerard's thing? But by which I mean, was he a Christmas tree guy with Rangers? He was, he was eventually, yeah. So... I- I did a piece um, fairly recently with uh, Jordan Campbell, who is our Rangers writer, um, looking at sort of what Gerald would bring to Aston Villa in terms of how they set up and things. Um, and it, it sort of started off as a four-three-three, or what we'd consider a, a typical four-three-three with with wide uh, wingers, inverted wingers, um, and that was with Daniel Candeas on the right and Ryan Kent on the left, with uh, Alfredo Morelos in in the middle and. I think Rangers' kind of main issue early on when Gerard arrived was that they couldn't really break down the opposition all that much because the opposition often sat so deep and they couldn't really break them down. But eventually, what that did, what he did was was bring in sort of two number tens, kind of more more centrally. What is the known as the four three two one, and um, that was kind of I think towards the end of that first season and. Since then, he sort of had Joe Aribo, Yanis uh, Hadji, and, and Ryan Kent was still kind of uh, involved in more narrow. Um, positions with behind uh, Morelos and sometimes Jermaine Defoe as well so 
then the, the width came really well from from Borna Barisic on the left and James uh, Tavernier on the right. So it was kind of what we see in, in Aston Villa is that that the I guess that strength of the fullbacks either side so that the, the two number tens can overload more sort of central areas and then you've got that front five again, which is what Michael's spoken about in the past. So I think he didn't start off with it necessarily, but he realised that it could certainly help them um, in sort of build-up and attacking phases. Um, and he sort of ended with that before, before moving to Villa. And Michael, clearly the results have been good so far under Gerrard. Uh, they had lost five games in a row in the Premier League. They've since won four out of six. And, and the two defeats, of course, to Manchester City and Liverpool will get into what didn't work against those sides, albeit both narrow defeats with heads held high. Uh, the four wins, though, against Brighton, Palace, Leicester and Norwich, against four teams playing different styles, different systems, but ultimately Villa winning all of those games. Uh, what, what do you think's worked so well early on here? Um, a few things. I think they've got a striker who, who makes very good runs in, into the channels and in behind in, in Ollie Watkins. I think it's played into the hands of... Um, Buendia, who hasn't always started and hasn't necessarily always influenced the game throughout 90 minutes, but he was often struggling for game time. And he's the kind of player, I think, really, you know, a, a clever between-the-lines player who can find pockets of space. I think he's done really well. Um, and it's definitely benefited the fullbacks, as I, as I said before. I think Cash in particular. I think so. I think he's good technically, but I think what Cash has got, he's got tremendous energy and he's always going up and down. That's Probably more than any other system. I suppose the diamond midfield is, is similar, but more than any other system. If you play a really narrow attack like this, and you don't really see that much anymore, you need all the width from your fullbacks. So you need players that are constantly able to get on their bike. And Cash has done that very well. Targets, I must say, 12, 18 months ago, I wasn't sure about Target as a Premier League player, but I think he's really come on and had a good, a good couple of seasons. So I can't really see many players who it hasn't benefited so far. I mean, Bailey has... Um, he started a couple of games. To me, he seems more like a winger than mm. a, a real inside player. But I don't think that's, you know, you can interpret it in different ways. And I think he can he can bring something to the side from that position. But yeah, overall, it's, it's just, I, I wouldn't say it's been sparkling football, but it's been good to watch. I mean, he's getting, really, he's trying to get his best players in the, in the same team together. Um, and I don't think it's, um, you know, it's not inconceivable that Ings and Watkins could play in the system together as well. I mean, they did briefly against Liverpool. I think Ings can play in a slightly deeper position. I think he'd probably consider himself as much of a second striker as he would an out-and-out striker. I know he scores a lot of goals, but his link play is very good as well. So, yeah, there's. I don't think anyone is worse off from this system, really. I think that was the, the key thing, which just coming back to what you said, Michael, of just trying to get the all of the attacking players, all of the right players into, into the right system. And obviously with Jack Grealish leaving in the summer... Dean Smith didn't quite find the right formula to try and get all of the best players in into the system. And of course, injuries come into it and Villa have had quite a few injury issues. But they started off with a 4-2-3-1, similar to what they had last season when Grealish was in the side and moved to a conventional 4-3-3. They tried a three at the back with a 3-5-2. And that was, I think, to accommodate Watkins and Ings kind of as a two up top together. And it looks as though, as you say, Michael, that they've they found a system that kind of works for everyone. Um, at the moment and as you say I think the fullbacks are benefiting really well I watched the the game against Norwich recently and, and Matty Cash was one of the best players on the pitch he seems to really thrive in in being afforded that space because it is quite narrow in the centre to be able to just run up and down that wing so providing he's got the energy to to do so I think he'll really profit from it as well 
certainly not a, an academy player being bedded in for the sake of it. He now looks like one of Steven Gerrard's sort of most trusted players. And I guess the bonus is he can play in central midfield in the three, as he did on Tuesday night against Norwich. But equally, uh, you could see how he could benefit from playing in that 10 role as well. Yeah, and he's, he's very well thought of uh, in the club. I think that's the, the thing about him is that he is so, so versatile. He's able to play in that, that number 10 role, but I think he played more in the, the more of the central midfield role against uh, Norwich. So he's still kind of certainly young enough to be moulded into whatever position that, that he wants. And I think Gerard kind of sees a bit of himself in Ramsey and that he's just, he's got, he puts in, you know, the, the most effort in every game and he's, He's so versatile and being able to, to carry the ball, he can pick a pass and he's got that kind of youthful energy. And that was shown so so brilliantly against Norwich in that goal where he just carried it. He was on his own, no one around him, and he managed to keep his composure and, and slot it. I question the defending ever so slightly, but that's for another time. Just want to touch on, on the central midfield three. Uh, it was very notable, uh, and it has been not just in that game against Norwich, but in previous games as well, that... You know the the question that I raised at the top of the of the pod, Michael, about uh, one sort of interesting aspect to this being what those three central midfielders do in possession. You know how they are contributing to build up play or to attacks in the final third. I mean, because as discussed, Target and Cash have you know such an onus on them to get on their bike, as you said, uh, and and retain that width high up the pitch. Uh, of course, that leaves big gaps in those wide areas defensively and whether it's McGinn dropping into right back, whether it's the uh, Douglas Louise, as it was quite a lot uh, last night, dropping into the left back position. You know, there were times where Villa were, were trying to build up from the back and trying to build up fairly patiently where it looked like they had a flat back four almost in possession. And it was the central midfielders who had dropped in to fill those spaces left by target and cash. So that's quite an interesting aspect to this. Uh, and I suppose also, you know, you've got those two number 10s, Michael, but you mentioned that you think Ings could play that role as more of a second striker type, trying to run in behind and create uh, danger that way. You know, you can format those two number 10s in a very different way. They can be different players with different skill sets and still combine really well. Yeah, I think that's the fun thing about the system is, like I said, 10 or 15 years ago, I think these players probably, they were viewed like they had to be number 10s. But I mean, what type of player is going to be unhappy to be filled in that position? I mean, we don't have that many classic wingers these days. You know, wingers are either coming inside or they're creative players. And if you say to them, look, we want to play inside as more of a number 10, I think they're happy with that. I think most strikers now are not out-and-out strikers. They're, they're players who like dropping deep, so they can play there. Obviously, a, a classic number 10 will be happy that he's got two slots that he can potentially be filled in. And, and even attacking central midfielders, I think, would be happy to push forward. So I don't think there's many players who are really worse off from the system. OK, maybe classic wingers, real classic touchline-hugging wingers. But again, I can't really think of any top players in the Premier League who, who wouldn't like that. I mean, even you look at Manchester United and Jaden uh, Sancho, I look at him in that mould. But Hasenhut was playing a kind of 4-2-2-2, so he's playing much narrower than he would usually. Not the first person. Hasenhut, yeah. Well. That's not the first time I've heard that. I don't know. You look at Jaden Sancho at Manchester United, who I would consider a fairly classic winger, but Ralph Rangnick's playing a, a 4-2-2-2, so he's been playing a lot narrower than than he would normally. And he's looked all right. He hasn't looked any worse than he was uh, before the change of system. So, yeah, I, I just think it's a, a system that is quite player-friendly. I think you can often accommodate your best players in, in positions they like. Now let's talk about what hasn't worked so well and... 
you know, there's no shame in, in losing by a single goal to Manchester City and Liverpool. But perhaps, Michael, that Liverpool game highlighted the the most glaring and obvious sort of issues with the Christmas tree formation. Um, the first thing I noticed when looking back at this game on who scored was, you know, clearly having three central midfield players and two players in front of them who are, who are mainly going to be covering central areas in the pitch. You do have great coverage in those central zones. You can congest the play very nicely and make it difficult to play through you. And in fact, Liverpool's team heat map that I saw on who scored for this game has a hole in the centre circle which I'm not sure I've ever really seen before because generally um, you know that that area would be covered but it, it was as if and dare I say it was absolutely this that the Liverpool players understood what, what was needed to basically get get away from those snapping at their heels in the centre of the park. And, and they did all their damage building up down the sides with Henderson, with Salah, with Alexander-Arnold, particularly on that side, with Mane and Robertson on the other side. And Thiago, such a smart player, just drifted all over and, and exploited this system's great weaknesses. Yeah, I think that is the obvious weakness, the, the, the issue down the flanks. I mean, we've seen this a, a couple of times before when teams have gone away to Anfield and tried to leave the flanks bare it's just so risky against Alexander Arnold and Robertson. I remember Unai Emery doing the same. I think it was in his first or second season. It might have been his second season, but with Arsenal, he played a diamond, which obviously is a similar system in terms of the narrowness. And it did cause some problems, but ultimately Robertson and Alexander Arnold are just, are just too dangerous to leave free. And there's a very good uh, analysis piece of this that I read on a site called The 42, which is an Irish website that has a lot of very good analytical stuff on it. Uh, written by a guy called Shane Keegan, who was the assistant of Dundalk, who you may remember from really good Europa League uh, journey, including playing Arsenal. And he he picks it apart really well. Um, and says, basically, to summarise, and I know I'm putting words in his mouth, he basically says it's brave but foolish um, <laughs> in terms of leaving the fullbacks free. But I think, and I don't want to go down the whole route of, oh, Steven Gerrard might want to be Liverpool manager, but the one thing he had to be in this fixture was brave. I don't. He couldn't have gone to Anfield and been defensive. And people say, "Oh, is that what is that what Gerard's all about?" I can't ever imagine seeing him here. You had to go there and act like you were the manager of a big club uh, and set up tactically like a big club. And maybe it was a little bit uh, foolhardy. And, and certainly, the, the, when you look at the XG, this was quite a convincing win, even if it was only one nil, one nil from a penalty. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's just good to see a manager doing something slightly different. And I think that's. Um, it's generally beneficial. I think it will ask opponents questions they're not accustomed to. And there won't be many teams that are as well-placed as Liverpool to um, to basically play around this this quite narrow defensive block. I think that was the thing with, with the, the Liverpool game where it's the strength and weakness of the, the formation itself is that it can be sort of really good in keeping that central area really compact and not letting the, the opposition play through them and forcing the opposition into wide areas and then using the the touchline as kind of a, an extra defender to sort of shepherd the opposition. But when you're playing against one of the, the best teams in the world full stop, but also one of the best teams who use their width brilliantly through the fullbacks, then it potentially was quite, quite naive. But again, it shows the strengths and weaknesses of that sort of formation and mm -hmm. that system that against other teams, as Villa have proven, um, it can work really well, but maybe not against someone whose strength is their width. <laughs> Well, that's right. And, and it's not, you know, Trent and Robertson, that's as tough as it gets really in terms of, of uh, fullbacks at this level. But it's it's not just them. It's teams who 
can combine well and who build up very well and create overloads down the sides that you need to worry about because Henderson's heat map as well, he's basically playing as a, as a right midfielder, as a right winger at times and uh, Villa didn't really have an answer for that even if uh, the outside central midfielders, you know, they do have a bit more licence to, to track runners and, and travel all over the pitch and, and be confident that they've got coverage back inside but Henderson and Thiago were so smart in their movement in that game. Um, of course, you know, Liverpool one of the best teams in the country, Manchester City, hurt Villa in this way a little, one of the best teams in the country, Chelsea, very good at, at building up down the sides as well with, with their wing-backs. Uh, outside of the big six uh, teams, I wonder who else we could predict might have some joy uh, against this Aston Villa side. Um, this might be a legacy of their time in the championship, but one thing that was always very noticeable about Brentford uh, when I covered them in the second tier was how well they built patiently down the sides. You know, teams would defend narrow and Brentford would be absolutely fine with that because they were so good and so well drilled at creating overloads and creating good crossing situations at the right times with obviously Tony in the middle. So that might be something to watch when uh, Brentford next face Villa. It's not just Aston Villa and Steven Gerrard, Michael. You see bits and bobs of this type of thing uh, across Europe every now and then. Uh, who else do we need to mention uh, teams who have adopted or tried out the Christmas tree formation? Yeah, not too many in uh, recent years. I think it's quite a Serie A thing, in particularly because of Ancelotti. I remember a great Palermo side from about 10 years ago that had Pastore and Ilicic uh, as the two number 10s, which was fantastic to watch. Um, in Serie A, I, I don't think any sides are doing it this season. Last season, Benevento used the system quite a lot, but they did get relegated, so probably not worth speaking about too much from that perspective. <laughs> um, according to the... Um, the, the stats, Dortmund have done it once this season in a 4-3 win against Leverkusen. I must admit, I didn't see that. Dortmund have used many systems this season, as, uh, as I think we chatted about when we had Rafa on the podcast. Um, I suppose you could argue the PSG system is. I mean, Messi and Neymar are obviously starting on the flanks. Both are coming inside. I'd say both are definitely more number 10s than they are wingers. Um, Mbappe is usually in the, in the central role. And... Um, whether by uh, design or because it's just what they want to do, they don't do much defending. They're not they're not tracking back and defending the wide areas. And certainly in the Champions League games, in the big Champions League games, when they have, you know, they PSG tend to start in quite an obvious defensive shape for the first ten minutes, and then it falls apart. And to me, it did seem like Messi and Neymar were told to occupy the space um, in central areas against Manchester City around Rodri rather than tracking back with Manchester City's fullback. So I suppose you could say that is a. Uh, a Christmas tree, but mm. I think Pochettino is struggling to um, get the side playing as he wants. So it's, uh, I, I suppose, the kind of Christmas tree that we've got in Trafalgar Square at the moment, which is uh, not the most beautiful one I've ever seen. So uh, as we know from last week, uh, a football tactic is like a blanket. You can cover your feet or you can cover your head but you cannot cover both. Uh, in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of this system, from, from what you guys have said, the strengths, clearly central areas uh, with the ball, uh, more numbers there that can make you more difficult to play through and it can also uh, help you to create good opportunities through the centre of the pitch. Michael, you also mentioned that it's quite handy in getting the best players in your team playing together, particularly uh, if they're number 10 types. Um, forces the opposition wide in attack, forces them to cross, which again, we've discussed, can be... Um easier to handle than, than teams who have other ways of attacking uh, and potentially adds protection to transition attacks from the opposition if you've got those three central midfielders uh, covering the gaps left by the wing backs but of course some obvious issues as well width 
in the attacking phase, but also uh, in the defensive phase. We saw that against Liverpool, where clearly uh, Young and Buendia, who were the dual tens there, had been instructed not to track Alexander-Arnold and Robertson as much as you would expect a pair of wingers to track them. And it was quite tough to watch, to be honest. It was it was a, a bit like watching a Bielsa side play against one of the top teams where you, you can see what's happening and you wonder why those gaps aren't being plugged. Um, Villa were kind of willfully being overrun there. And as far as I can tell, they didn't really make up for it with quick counter-attacks using those two tens. So that, that didn't work particularly well there. I suppose as well, you could get a bit clogged up, a bit congested in the final third, you know, a lack of space uh, in the opponent's third. You need those two number tens to be properly in sync. And as we as we mentioned, they can be two very different players, but you need them to combine well with each other and, and with the striker as well. So we've heard the what, the who, the when the why and the why not of the Christmas tree formation. And now it's time to put it into practice. Next up on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, I'm going to ask the guys to build the perfect current Premier League 11 in a Christmas tree formation. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Right, guys, putting you to work now with a selection of the best Premier League Christmas Tree 11 with players most suited to the roles uh, as we've explained them. Uh, But... You can only pick one player per club, so you can't just fill them with Manchester City, Liverpool players, etc. Think of it like this. Like MLS, there's a new franchise in the Premier League owned and bankrolled by Michael Bublé. Uh, he's, he loves Christmas. Uh, he says you have to play with a Christmas tree formation, uh, but he also has allowed you to steal one player from each team to make an 11 to challenge for the title. So uh, I think we should start at the, at the exciting end of the pitch with the striker and the dual tens. Mark, who have you selected here? Oh, I'm up first. Okay. Um, so yeah, working from the striker, I think in this system, you, you do need someone to sort of run the channels, but you need someone to be that focal point and that sort of fox in the box 
So I have gone for Jamie Vardy for that exact reason. So Leicester is subsequently off my list, but I have yeah stuck with the clinical finisher, Jamie Vardy. Um, behind him, I'm already kind of regretting my decision. Um, but that's a bit like the, the piece that's out on site today in terms of the 10 best Premier League players. But we'll just, I'll stick with my decision. I'm going Bruno Fernandes uh, as one of the attacking midfielders. Um, for obvious reasons, he's is a known number 10. Um, and Mason Mount uh, alongside him, he's played that role, as we've spoken about, the, the 3 4 2 1 more so in, in Tuchel's Chelsea, but um, plays that role really well uh, in behind a sort of central striker and you can find pockets of space. So I've got Vardy with Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandes in behind. Interesting. I also have Mason Mount in there um, and I considered Vardy, but in the end, I, I went for Callum Wilson who I'm a massive fan of. I think he's brilliant at winning, uh, running the channels. I think he's he's slightly better at Vardy as well in terms of just dominating the box on his own. I think Vardy's obviously a brilliant player on the counter-attack, but um, Wilson I like as a, a semi-target man as well. But I, I'm, I mean, I, I was very close to, to going for Vardy. Um, my other number 10, and this is, you know, I really looked at this from a kind of stylistic thing rather than a a real quality perspective. And I must, I must admit, I'm still slightly undecided how good this player is. But I went for Martin Odegaard just because I think he's he's exactly the kind of player who he's happy drifting out wide. He's happy get, getting the ball between the lines. I think he's got three goals in his last three games because he's, he's proved very good at getting into the box, which you need in this system because you don't have wide players arriving at the far post or anything. So yeah, I went for Odegaard and a mount behind Callum Wilson. We've got the midfield three now. you got fairly specific roles I would say that certainly the outside uh, central midfielders might have to do uh, a fair amount of running might have to to cover plenty of ground out of possession particularly get dragged into wide areas what sort of blend have you gone with Michael? Yeah I went for two players who on the outsides who I think you could argue they don't necessarily know their best position but I think maybe their best position would be in this kind of role in this kind of system so I bet you've already worked out I'm talking about Paul Pogba to the left uh, to the right, Tangi Ndombele, who I think um, in some ways is is similar, probably better on the ball and better at turning past pressure and, and weaving past opponents. But I think they, you know, you need players who are capable of covering a lot of ground mm. um, as well as being technically very good because they have to carry the ball forward a lot. So I like those two players a lot individually. Maybe don't produce the most consistent performances, but I think they'd, uh, they'd do well here. I think in central midfield, you just need a real solid, sturdy player who's going to, I think of the word commanding, mm-hmm. someone who can command the central area themselves. So I went for Rodri, um, which I wouldn't have dreamt of saying a year ago, but I think he's having a brilliant season. Well, I've gone for a different midfield three altogether, which is good because I was thinking we might actually end up doing the countdown of showing your notes to each other just to prove that you did select them. But um, <laughs> I've, I'm going to start in defensive midfield and... I agree with the what Michael said in terms of the reasons as to why. I think with AC Milan's famed uh, system, it was obviously Andrea Pirlo, who was the sort of deep-lying playmaker. And the Yorkshire Pirlo is Calvin Phillips. So I'm going to go Calvin Phillips um, holding things. And I'm going to put Declan Rice on the left side and uh, John McGinn on the right side. Because John McGinn himself has, has shown that he's he's done so, so well within this system. Um, and Declan Rice, both of them can can get up and down, cover a lot of ground. Um, McGinn's obviously got a really good eye for a sort of progressive pass, able to carry it forward. And, and Declan Rice has got bundles of energy as well. So Calvin Phillips, Declan Rice and John McGinn in my midfield. 
great to have uh, Aston Villa's John McGinn in there because he's a, a current sort of example of, of how to interpret that outside midfield role uh, and finish off with your back four and your goalkeeper. I think we all know that being a fullback in this team is equal parts exciting and quite scary. Yeah, I went for, uh, I mean, goalkeeper and centre-back doesn't really matter here, does it? So I went for <laughs> Kas- I went for Kasper Schmeichel, Yeri Mina and Esri Konza. The fullbacks are the interesting ones. I went for Kufau at West Ham. Or Sufau, I should say, West Ham, uh, and Andy Robertson. And I think the interesting thing here is I prefer Alexander Arnold to Robertson. I think he's a better player on the ball. I think particularly in terms of being able to come inside and create, he's superior to Robertson. But you don't want that in this system. You want someone who's constantly sprinting. And I think Robertson's a little bit more dynamic, times his runs forward very, very well when he's going outside or inside. Um, and is I'd say he's not quite as good a crosser as, as Alexander Arnold. But I think in terms of this system, it would suit him more. I, I completely agree on the goalkeeper and centre-backs. I just kind of went for whoever. I actually, starting with the goalkeeper, I went down the statistical route. This is the first time I've been able to, been able to put data into this episode, just a tiny <laughs> sprinkling. But Jose Saar uh, of Wolves has, statistically speaking, been one of the best shot stoppers uh, in the league this season. So he's going to go in goal for me. Um, I've also put Andy Robertson at left-back for the exact reason. Uh, he's able to shuttle up and down. Um, ben White and Americ Laporte in the middle for me, two uh, players good on the ball, able to to carry it out as well. Um, and I realised as you were speaking, Michael, that I've made a mistake of putting two Chelsea players in because yeah. I was going to put Reese James in. Um, so I'm going to quickly pivot and probably say someone like Tarek Lamptey, I think would be good in terms of shuttling up and down um, that right-hand side, plenty of energy able to overlap and get up and down. So um, that one was off the cuff, but I think that would actually work really well. Very interesting. Uh, a few thoughts. No Bukayo Saka <laughs> for either of you, which means Ben T is losing his mind right now. It's the worst day of Ben T's life not having Saka in here. We, we, out of interest, Michael, which role in the Christmas tree formation would suit Saka the best? He's, he's so versatile that I can sort of make a case for a number of them, but I'm not sure which would suit him best. I have a slightly controversial view that if Kieran Tierney hadn't joined Arsenal... Saka would be like the best left back in the Premier League. I think he could be like an Alexander Arnold left back. So I, w- I was actually tempted to field him left back. I mean, I think he can play anywhere really. Uh, he would probably be quite good for the um, the two roles just behind the striker, I think, because he can drift wide. He can play in the central role. Um, yeah, I- I'm a massive fan of Saka. I must say, I-, I think he's. I think considering he's had such a big, we're going a bit off topic, but considering he had such a big disappointment in the summer. Mm. He really has not shown any sign of it. And I think in so many games for Arsenal, he's just dragged them through and been their best player by miles. But yeah, he didn't quite get the cut here. Sorry. It's interesting you mentioned uh, him playing left-back had Tierney not signed. That There was a period before he signed his new contract in the summer of 2020 where I was fairly sure that, that City were going to do what they've done before, poach an Arsenal player with an expiring contact, uh, contract, break the hearts of Arsenal fans. And I thought he might be earmarked for the left-back role uh, in, in Pep City. But uh, thankfully for the Arsenal fans, that did not happen. I'm slightly rattled by both of you just basically suggesting that centre-backs don't matter uh, in any way, which I think was peculiar. Um, for what it's worth, 
I put together a team which I think is way better than yours. I've got Jose Sarr in goal as well, uh, thanks to those aforementioned shot-stopping numbers which I, I caught on the Opta Analyst site. My fullbacks are Joao Cancelo uh, and Kieran Tierney for fairly obvious reasons. I think Tierney is basically Andy Robertson, right? And uh, and Joao Cancelo with the quality that he has, uh, both going forward and defensively. I've got Virgil van Dijk at the back, because I think centre-backs are really important, and I think he's the best in the league by a distance. And next to him, Ethan Pinnock uh, of Brentford, partly because he is a legend of the EFL. He played in the Isthmian League. Uh, he graduated university in 2015, and now he's thriving on the Premier League stage, but also in footballing terms because he's got a very high aerial win percentage. And if we're sending the opposition down the sides, then we, we might have to deal with a few crosses per game. In midfield, Yorkshire Pirlo, Calvin Phillips, like you, Mark, I, I feel like it's not that dissimilar to the role that he already inhabits uh, for this lead side. And outside of him, Engolo Kante and Connor Gallagher, mobility being the key here. Kante, one of the best players in the world, of course. Uh, and Gallagher, like an untrained puppy in a park full of treats. And he wants them all. And that's what I want from my outside centre midfielder here. And then completely different front three. I had uh, Bruno Fernandes and Son Heung-min uh, as my dual tens. I think Son's got the... Uh, the the footballing intelligence to inhabit this role brilliantly and be possibly my main goal threat to be honest with Fernandez doing high volume Fernandez things next to him uh, and that that left me with a, a striker choice between uh, Vardy and Mikel Antonio but I went with Antonio just because all the things you mentioned mobility running channels focal point where necessary I think he's got the highest expected assist per 90 of any number nine in the Premier League this year as well so he'll be great foil for Son running in behind um, could you run me through your starting 11s so that I can make a note put them out on Twitter set up a poll and let the listeners decide who has the strongest Premier League Christmas tree 11. Michael, why don't you go first? Uh, Schmeichel, Kufau, Konsa, Mina, Robertson, Rodri, Ndombele, Pogba, Mount, Odegaard and Wilson. Mark? Uh, before I do, I just want to qualify that I didn't say the I said the centre backs aren't as important simply because of the four three two one formation. <laughs> Not necessarily they aren't important, but I have put uh, Jose Sarr, Andy Robertson, Ben White, and Merrick Laporte, Tariq Lamptey, Calvin Phillips, Declan Rice, John McGinn, with Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandez behind Jamie Vardy. Mm. Uh, Jose Sarr in goal for me Cancelo, Van Dijk, Pinnock, Tierney uh, Calvin Phillips, N'Golo Kante, Conor Gallagher Son Heung-min, Bruno Fernandes and Mikel Antonio Whose team is best? Head to Twitter and vote on that Remember this is important because this is the time of year where there's a lot of lowest common denominator Twitter content out there football Twitter accounts giving it Oh, what's your Christmas footballer pun 11? And people going, oh, Santa Claus Lundukvam and sleigh given. <laughs> Join in with this. Tweet us your Christmas tree 11 to Mark, to Michael and myself. We'd love to hear from you. And let's work out who has the best tactical brain for a Christmas tree formation. Who is the Steven Gerrard of Football Tactics podcast listeners? Uh, there you go. Th this might have felt initially when you saw the title of the podcast like arbitrary christmas content but it was nothing of the sort the christmas tree formation done 
in true athletic football tactics podcast style huge thank you to michael and to mark for their festive work here guys what can i expect from you on the athletic site this week mark We've got a lot of uh, exciting things coming up in January um, to do with January transfer window. So I'm working mm-hmm. hard with a lot of the club writers uh, to get that in position. So for any football fan, there's plenty of stuff coming your way. Premier League fixtures this midweek and last weekend, not particularly interesting. So maybe something a little bit more continental this weekend. Mm. That sounds exciting. Uh, Theathletic.com forward slash tactics. The last time I'll mention that you can get 33% off an annual subscription if you sign up to The Athletic today. And we're wishing you a very happy holiday period. It's not the last you'll hear from us. We'll be back next week so that you have something to listen to between arguments about politics with your uncle. Subscribe to the podcast feed and join us then. Thanks for listening to The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.